pray for God's blessing on His Word. Father, we do come and pray the same prayer that our Lord Jesus prayed on the night in which He was betrayed. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. We pray this morning that You would sanctify us, that You would consecrate us and set us apart for Your service. Give us a heart of greater devotion to Christ through the power of Your Word at work in us as the Spirit applies it. So we pray that You would be about that business this morning. For Jesus' sake, Amen. You may be seated. Our Scripture passage this morning is Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8 which is on page 394 and 395 of the Pew Bible. Being a Clemson fan, I remember a couple of years ago, they fired their head coach, Tommy Bowden, head football coach, hired the new football coach, Dabo Sweeney. He'd never been a head football coach on Division I level, but was very energetic and came up with a slogan, I'm all in. And there were t-shirts printed up, there were bumper stickers, posters that said, I'm all in. And of course, people bought in to what he said so that they were all in. And not only were they all in emotionally, but they bought it up too by buying up the t-shirts and the bumper stickers and the posters that said, I'm all in. In many ways, it's much easier to get people to buy in or to be all in about a sports program than it is people to be all in about God and in a way that's what this passage here is about as we see the second wave of Israelites returning from Babylonia to the promised land as God had promised and so let's take up this passage and read together I'll read portions of it not all of it beginning in verse 1 these are the heads of their father's houses and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. And then he lists a number of families. We'll pick up in verse 15. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jareb, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joirib and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place Kasaphiah, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Kasaphiah, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Malhi, the son of Levi, the son, uh, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kismen. 18. Also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah, of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons. 20. Besides 220 of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us 
against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. And then skipping down to verse 31. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah, and with him Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benu. The, the whole uh, was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river. And they aided the people and the house of God. In 1519, Hernando Cortez, you may remember him from ninth grade history, set off from Spain. He wanted to find and take for himself what was considered to be the largest treasure in all the world from Mexico. And so he convinced a large number of men to leave from Spain. They traveled to Cuba where they resupplied. And those men who had complained on the way after committing to going that they no longer wanted to be on this escapade, he allowed them to get off. And then setting sail from Cuba to the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico, he went with the men who remained. And when they landed on shore, they began a regiment of training. He even had not only physical training, but seminars where he would rile them up and get them ready to go and take what they believed was rightfully theirs and to not give up. But then there was one last thing. He burned all of his ships. All 11 ships to say to his men, there's no going back. We're in this all the way. We're all in. And in a way, that's exactly what this text is about. Now, the, the kings of Persia, as we've seen going through the book of Ezra, have provided. They've provided for the people of God in their journeys. They've provided uh, goods for the building of the temple. They've provided everything that's needed for the building of the temple. But one thing that they have not given is the thing that God wants the most. Not our material possessions, but our very souls. It's the one thing they were unwilling to give. But what about the people? What about the people of God? Well, we've sort of fast-forwarded about 60 years after the completion of the temple. And this is the second wave of returnees, you might say, who are listed here in verses 1 through 14 of chapter 8. What's interesting as we look at this particular section where all of these names are listed, and on one hand, it might be an affirmation of these particular families that they have decided to return not only to the Lord and to His purposes, 
for Israel. God had purposed to redeem His people, to buy them back from bondage in exile, to once again restore them to the land, to sanctify them and purify them, to reclaim them as His people and to reaffirm all of His promises to them. And here are these people who are gathering together saying, I want to be part of this. But what's interesting about the list of names here is that it's the same families that are listed back in chapter 2 of Ezra in the first wave. Which means there were people who did not go back in the first wave, but yet remained in Babylonia. Who were unwilling. They didn't want to make the journey back. Maybe life in the land had become very comfortable for them. And they didn't want to give it up and return to the Lord. And in many ways, that's a, that's a spiritual condition that every generation of the church faces, isn't it? People who are not on board. People who are not all in, you might say, in terms of devotion to God. And there might be lists of names throughout the generations of the churches where some family members have given themselves to God while other family members have not. You see, indecision about serving God is actually a decision not to serve Him. God is not withholding Himself from us and He doesn't want us to withhold ourselves from Him. He wants us to follow wholeheartedly. He wants us to be all in. So then what does it mean? What does it look like when a disciple chooses to follow Christ wholeheartedly? Three things here. First is this. We must deny our pursuit of a godless life. Deny our pursuit of a godless life. Now in verse 15, what Ezra says is, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priest, I found there none of the sons of Levi. There were no Levites. Levites were needed. They were the ones who were in charge of all the temple uh, uh, elements. And there were none here. Why is that? Well, there are a number of reasons that we could possibly give. Maybe for them, life had become very prosperous in exile. Maybe they didn't want to return back to Jerusalem where they would be the servants of the priests. They would have the, quote, mundane task of serving in the temple of all the particular practical needs. Maybe they had a better life now. And the last thing that they wanted to do is go back to a life in which they are nobody. And so, Ezra says, I found there are none of the sons of Levi. Apparently, it was much easier to get the signature of a king than it was to get volunteers from the people of God. No Levites. They had sought to live, you might say, at some distance from God. And that's what exactly I mean by a God-less life. Not an immoral life necessarily, but a life in which God is not present where there are aspects of our lives where God is not there because we have not purposely pursued Him there. We have not wanted Him to be there. We have not prayed and cried out to God for Him to be there. And so the fingerprints of His working are not in those particular places because we've sought to live apart from Him in those ways. But you see, a true disciple who gives himself to the Lord is one in which God's presence, His rule, 
His power, His glory, His salvation is present in every particular area of our life. So that we want more of Him. More of Jesus would I know, as the hymn writer says. More of Him. I want Him everywhere. I want Him in all parts of my life. Rather than saying, Lord, You're not welcome in particular places. And that's exactly what the Levites become convinced of. We see here in verse 16 that He sent for certain men and found leading men. And in particular, there were two men of great insight. They possessed a sense of understanding, a discernment. Maybe they had a political savvy about them. And in this instance, actually, the word can mean not just that they possessed understanding and insight, but they were able to give it to others. They were able to cause other people to see things clearly. And so here Ezra tells them just what to say, we're told in verse 17, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants. And so they go off and they say just what Ezra told them to say to the Levites. But because they were men of insight, understanding, and wisdom, they were able to set the word before the people of God in such a way that there was a weight to it. And when that happened, God worked powerfully so that Ezra could record the good hand of God was on us. God was at work. And the result is this, that a man of discretion was brought to them. There was a man of discretion among the Levites. Now, here's a man who has wisdom, who has understanding, or you might say has good sense, who can begin to see things for what they are, who begins to measure his own life and say, now wait a minute. My life is not measuring up to what God promised in His Word. I'm not seeking to live for Him and to give myself. I'm withholding myself. I'm holding back. And therefore, there are parts of my life that are God-less because God is not there working because I've never invited Him there. And I would much prefer to live without Him there. And yet, here's a man who has a sense of Wisdom and understanding who is persuaded to see that he's been living his life, at least in part, devoid of God. So here there's these men who are wise enough to begin to see their own spiritual condition. And 258 men plus women and children devote themselves to the Lord that day. Talk about revival. Wholesale commitment to God. So that we're willing to give up our whole life here and go over there where God promises to bless. Friends, to be that kind of disciple means that we begin to divest ourselves in the treasures of the world and living for the world and saying, Lord, I don't want you in certain areas of my life. And we begin to invest in knowing God and invest in serving God and invest in God's promises so that we begin to trust them and live them out so that his fingerprints are literally on everything so that there's no untouchable area of my life. Is there an untouchable area of your life where you don't want anybody to ask about it? Much less do you want God to ask about it? 
Because you see, if we have an untouchable area of life, to that extent we're living Godless. That is to say, without Him. Sometimes it's easier said than done to say I want to live for God and I want Him in every part of my life. That I want to make a decision of wholehearted commitment to Him. But in reality, it's often met with some level of resistance within us. For some, it's a sense of resistance that comes from procrastination. I'll get serious about God another day. I'll commit myself to the Lord another day. I'll trust in Jesus sometime later in my life. But you see, the problem with that is two things. One, there may not be a later. There may be, but there may not be. And all you have to do is look at the news. All you have to do is talk to people who've lost loved ones at a very early age and know that no day is promised to us by God. But not only that, there's no guarantee that one day in the future that I actually will turn to the Lord in wholehearted devotion. Because the more I put Him off now, the easier it becomes to put Him off in the future. And the more difficult it becomes to say, Lord, I want You in every single part of my life. And so for some, it's a matter of procrastination. For others, it's something quite different. It's just that we don't want Him in particular areas of our lives. And we want to pick out our level of commitment to God. Sort of like picking out a cable package. You know, there are all these different cable packages. And maybe you don't want to spend that much money. You don't want it to cost you that much. So I'll pick the basic cable package. Or when a, someone comes to you raising money for a capital campaign, you know, there are different levels at which you can give. <clears throat> you could be the gold donor. The gold donor who gives maybe $10,000 to a particular capital campaign. And in that case, you, you get a call from the president, don't you? Maybe even a lunch and a visit. But then there are other levels. Maybe it's $1,000. Maybe it's 100 Maybe it's 50 and you get a little form letter sent to you a week later. You see, we often want to sort of dial in our own commitment level to the Lord. I remember a number of years ago, the deacons of First Presbyterian Church put out a call for men to come and serve at a homeless shelter one particular evening. And I signed up and, and I went and I spent, I don't know, maybe five hours there helping to sign in uh, homeless men and women who were looking for shelter from the cold. And I remember thinking as I drove away, in one sense thinking, I'm glad I did that, but in another sense thinking, I'm glad I don't have to do that every week. I'm glad that I'm not the one who has to meet with those people and get to know them and smell the smells and deal with the lies that they tell me. I'm not the one who has to sit down at a table and eat a meal with them. I'm not the one who has to get to know their life story and figure out what went wrong. Sometimes we're like that too. A little bit of commitment. Maybe we're at the $50 level but we want, don't want to give ourselves completely and wholeheartedly to service to the Lord. And so here, the writer is saying to us, who I believe is Ezra at that point, this particular point, that to be a disciple, to be a disciple is to deny ourselves the right to choose our commitment level. 
To be a disciple is to deny ourselves the right to choose our commitment level. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And that's the only way that we're called to be disciples, to live a God-filled life. So that He's in everything. And when I understand that that's what's good and glorious, and I can say along with the psalmist, better one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Because I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good. So to follow Jesus, first of all, means we deny a godless life. But secondly, it means this. We trust God's care of our lives. We trust God's care of our lives. Most of us live in a very safe situation. In fact, maybe some of you have never been in a situation where you thought your life was actually threatened. But that's not the case here for Ezra. For the people of God who are traveling back from Babylonia hundreds and hundreds of miles across wilderness and desert back to the promised land. There's a real concern here of bandits along the way, especially given their cargo. You may remember from chapter 7 some of the things that they were carrying. Chapter 7, verse 16, the king says that they are to carry the silver and the gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel. That's their cargo, silver and gold. And what we're told here in Verses 26 and 27 of chapter 8 is the amount of gold and silver. Ezra says, I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver and, the, and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 100 derricks and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. Now I did a little calculation that's about 64,000 pounds of silver. That's about 7,500 pounds of gold. Now imagine strapping that on the back of your camel and walking across the desert. There's a real concern here. This is sort of like in our day, renting an 18-wheeler filled with gold and silver and trying to drive across the U.S.-Mexican border where 35,000 people have been killed in recent years because of the drug cartels with in bold lettering across the side of the tractor trailer filled with gold and silver, rob me. That's the kind of situation that Ezra and the people of God are in as they're seeking to cross to the other side of the desert. Now, Ezra knew that these particular items were the responsibilities of the priests and the Levites. So what we're told here is that he weighs them out to them. Verse 25, I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels. And he told them in verse 29, guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's houses in, the, in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. So he gives them, he weighs them out to the priests and the Levites. It's their job now. They're to guard them. But he knows that we're to put no confidence in princes nor on help. Now, nor on man our help depend. And so what does he do? He gathers the people to request the protection that only God can give. 
We're told here in verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. And in verse 23, so we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So they go before the Lord, they're, they're fasting, they're praying, they're imploring God, please protect us and care for us. In other words, Ezra and the people are putting them, themselves in the hands of God Almighty. Now, it's interesting to note here that verse 22 says, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king. The hand of our God is for on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Now, we need to realize here, God does use means. And in fact, in Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah chooses to receive the king's men as protection. But here Ezra does not. And the reason is not because he doesn't recognize that God uses means, that He uses medicine and police and lawyers and doctors and all types of things. But look at what he had told the king. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek Him. He will protect us. And the last thing that he wanted to do was defame the name of his God by saying, I don't think he can do it. I don't trust that the Lord will fulfill his promise and bring us safely home. Friends, the disciple who has decidedly chosen to give their life to Jesus is also the disciple who says, I'm going to trust God at every turn. It's the very thing that Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, don't store up earthly treasures, but store up heavenly treasures. You can't serve both God and money. And if you make that decision, I'm going to serve God and I'm not going to serve anything else in the creation. If you make that decision, then you have to also say, well, if I'm going to serve God and I'm going to trust in him alone, I need to walk by faith in him. Which is why Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount to say, do not be anxious. If you don't serve money, where will you turn? If you turn to the Lord, do not be anxious. He will be the one to care for you and to protect you. You see, once you've come to the point where you realize a God-filled life is the life that's worth living, then I want Him to be active in every way and I want my faith to be living and active in all the promises of God, which is demonstrated by putting myself in the hands of God. It's a living faith. It's an active faith. It's one that says to God, I trust you in everything that you promise. And therefore, I entrust myself to you. You see, faith, if it's real, is all or nothing. There's no armchair faith. There's no kind of faith that says, yes, that's true, that's right, God promises, but I won't act on it. Faith, if it's real, is all or nothing. Isn't that the way the gospel works? It's not faith plus works. It's not faith in Jesus plus something else that I can do. It's faith alone in Jesus. And the same is true in all areas of the Christian life. It's faith alone that I need in God. 
It's not just a little bit of faith. Faith that gets you through the hard times. Faith that gets you through the rough patches. But it's faith throughout everything in all parts of my life. In fact, we might ask ourselves this. Is there anything in my life that actually requires faith? Is there anything in my life that actually requires faith? Or have I so built protections around me so that there's no need for faith? And actually what I'm doing is by putting my faith in other things rather than God. Are you living in such a way that there are things in your life that actually require faith and have no other answer? That's when you know you're beginning to live by faith. Because there's nothing else in your life that can come through for you other than God Himself. So I think we often feel as though we do trust in God. We say it, and to an extent we do trust in God. Listen to the words of Proverbs 18, verses 10 through 11. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it an unscalable wall. Now there are two contrasts here. One is between the safety that the Lord can provide and what the world can provide, this fortified city. And I would say that we all have fortified cities. We all have these cities that you might say are, have walls around them, protections around our life. And we say, these are the things that are going to guard me. These are going to be the things that provide for my needs. These are going to th be the things that sustain me throughout the rest of my life. But there's another contrast here too. And the contrast is between faith and the security that brings and an imaginary security. Remember what it said? The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it an unscalable wall. You see, it's actually a lie. It's a lie. To say that there's something in my life that is my protection, my provision, other than God is a lie. And he says, don't live by that lie. Live by trust in me. Now, how do I do that? Three things real quick. One, be willing to be helped. Be willing to be helped by God. That was Ezra's position, wasn't it? I'm going to put myself in the hands of the Almighty. I'm not going to put myself in the hands of the King. We need to be willing to be helped. He didn't say, I can't ask for help from the King, so I need to find another angle. He said, I can't ask for help from the King because I'm going to trust in my God. Sometimes we don't like the way in which God provides. Sometimes we don't like the way in which He protects first and foremost, we need to be willing to be cared for by God. Willing to be protected by God. Willing for Him to work in our lives as long as it takes in whatever ways please Him. We need to be willing. Secondly, we need to pray. Not only for help, not only for His solution, but for the ability to trust. You remember the man whose son was demon-possessed and he came to Jesus talking about all the horrors that had happened to his son. And he said to him, Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Jesus looked at him and said, 
If you can. If you can what? If you can believe. He went on to say all things are possible for one who believes. And the Father said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, help me to believe. Pray. Plead that God would give you grace to believe. Finally this. Trust in God's Word. John Newton, who I've mentioned before, when his wife was dying of cancer, penned these words in his diary. He said, the promises of God must be true. Surely the Lord will help me if I'm willing to be helped. You hear that? If I'm willing. He wrote later, I was not supported by lively, sensible consolations, but by being enabled to realize to my mind some great and leading truths of the Word of God. In other words, they came home and they settled in my mind and they began to live there in such a way that I began to live on them. Sometimes God delivers in physical ways. Sometimes He delivers in material ways. Sometimes the way in which He delivers is simply to give us strength by His Word to keep going. To keep going. And that's what we're called to do. Is to trust Him and His care in every part of our lives. Friends, what promise has God given in His Word that you need to trust in this particular situation of life? Do you need to trust that if you, if you give up straddling the fence in terms of devoting your life to God in a particular area, that His promise that He will satisfy you with good will be true. Or maybe it's that He will not give you more than what you can bear. Maybe that's the promise you need to hold to. Maybe it's the promise that justice one day will be done. It may just be that you're bitter in your heart about some injustice against you. But justice will be done. Maybe it's that you need to hear that one day He will wipe away every tear of your eyes. Is that the promise you need to hear? Trust it. Live it. And God will be gracious to you. Finally this. Let me conclude with this last main point. To be a follower of Christ, a true devoted disciple, we need to devote ourselves to God with certainty of His salvation. Now one thing that's interesting, I think, in the book of Ezra is that three chapters so far have ended in a worship service. Chapter 3, chapter 6, and here in chapter 8, we're told at that time those who had come from captivity, the return exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. They're gathering together to worship. Why? Because if we were to read verses 31 through 34, what we realize is nothing was lost. Not one ounce of gold or silver, and most especially, not one person was lost. Jesus said to the Father, all that you have given to me, of those I have lost, not one. There is certainty in the promises of God. There is certainty in the salvation of God. And some of you might say this morning, I... I haven't devoted my life to Christ this way. There are certainly areas of my life that I do not want to turn over to Him. How can I say to Him now, Lord, receive me? 
You can because of the certainty of His promises of salvation. That when He says, come to Me, confess your sins, and I will forgive you and welcome you, that He really does mean it. The way Cortez motivated his troops was to burn his ships and say, you're in it now. The way Jesus motivates His people is to die for us. To make His promises of salvation certain. Isn't that a God that you want to give your whole life to? Isn't that a great God that you want to say, Lord, take all of me and help me to be all in. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, forgive us that we have so many times wandered from You. Forgive us that we hide ourselves from You and hide parts of our lives from You. And yet how graciously You continue to draw us back. We pray, Lord, that You would help us, enable us to come to You in full sense of devotion that we would give our lives to You because You have first given Your life to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.